I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the LRB Podcast. I'm Malin Hay. Joining me this week is Michael Wood, an academic and film critic who has been writing the monthly At The Movies column for the LRB since 2006 and writing about film, among many other things, since long before that. Michael, thank you for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Michael's most recent review was of Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander, which is back in cinemas this month to mark its 40th anniversary. And we'll talk about that a bit later on the show. But for now, let's start by talking about a big upset in the film criticism world recently, which was the release of the sight and sound top 100 greatest films of all time poll, which happens every 10 years. And this year in particular has been an upset because the top spot, which was previously taken up by Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, is now occupied by the film Jeanne Dielman by Chantal Ackerman, which has caused a lot of debate in the film world, I think. So, Michael, as not only a critic, but also somebody who voted on the Sight and Sound poll, um, maybe you could just start by talking a little bit about sort of what it means for this particular film to be placed at the top of this list. Yes. It's probably a good idea to say something about the actual procedure of, of, of the process of the, of the voting, which is very simple and very plain and, and, and extraordinarily open. I, I, was, I was very taken by it. Uh, they simply, you know, they write to whoever's going to be a judge, and that is people, you know, film critics, but also people who organise film festivals, people who you know, look after films in museums, and anyone who has some kind of uh, ongoing connection with the with the business of film and and we were simply all asked to to name 10 films that we that we, we thought were the 10 greatest films ever uh, not rank them not comment on them simply give the 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 name of the film the name of the director and and the date and it's every 10 years uh, Orson Welles Citizen Kane was the top the greatest film ever made for 50 years from 52 to 2012, then it was it was knocked aside by Hitchcock's Vertigo, which appeared as the, as the great film of two, uh, in 2012, and uh, Susan Cain went went to uh, uh, second place. Right? And at that point, I think it was something like there were two, there were two polls. You know, there's a there's a critics poll and a movie directors poll. Uh, we might talk about the differences in the, the results there because that's quite interesting. But the the last time ten years ago, something like 800 people voted in the critics poll and that would be people like film critics uh, people who organize film festivals people who do films in museums film scholars you know any, anybody who's got a kind of view or a kind of a commitment to, to judging and thinking about films but there were 800 and something uh, in 2012 this year there were 1600 people and I, they say it's much more diverse I don't know what diverse means here I don't know where they got the, the extra 800 people from or what it was about but that clearly has something to do with the change in the thing and there was this huge 
shock where where the Chantal Ackerman movie goes to the first place and Vertigo drops to number two and Citizen Kane drops to number three. After that, it's quite similar to some of the some of the earlier earlier things. But I think it is it is a real shock, and I think it's it, it's I'm still trying to digest the, the. I think it is. I do think it's a great movie. I have no I have no problem with it, with with the, the Jean Dima being a great. But it's a very understated, quiet movie where most of the things that happen are not seen. It's, it's you know, I was, I'm thinking of the opening sequence. This is a movie about a, a, a widowed woman played by Delphine Zerig. Uh, the first thing we see her is in her kitchen. It looks like a kind of, this is a domestic middle-class life. She's got a kind of uh, apron come coat on and she's cooking something in the kitchen and she just stands there. And she, the doorbell rings. Uh, she takes the coat off, uh, smartens herself up, very tidy and very correct. She goes to the door, opens the door. We see her take a hat and coat and scarf uh, from a, an unseen gentleman. Uh, then the gentleman appears and they both go off into the back room. The door, we just look at the door right, for a few minutes. And I look at the door. They come out. Uh, the guy's st- still got he's got his presumably he's taken off his clothes but he's now got his tie on his jacket everything is all set he goes to the door uh, Delphine Serri gives him or Jean Dilman gives him gives him his um, his scarf and, and, and hat and coat he puts them all on rather carefully and then he says he, he pulls out some money and gives her a handful of money and he says till next week see you next week and then he leaves and she goes and puts the money on a pot on the table Goes back to the kitchen to her cooking. I mean, it's a fantastic opening to a movie, but it's not—it's not big time horror. It's not like hanging from a rooftop in, in Vertigo, for example, and it's not like Rosebud stuff in Citizen Kane. It's a very different sort of movie where the the, the audience are having to do a lot of thinking and waiting. And because it does end—I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler—but it does end in violence. The movie, but. It, but um, there is something very interesting about that choice, and I don't know whether I don't know whether it's a, it's the choice of a of an out and out art movie that is is the big difference. Which so, you know, Vertigo, neither Vertigo nor Citizen Kane were art movies in that, or they were art movies and also uh, commercial sort of entertainment. Whereas it's hard to see this as kind of as mass entertainment. I think the, the Chantal Ackerman. I think it is great and it's beautifully done, but it it's, it seems it seems to reflect a very different sort of taste what you want from a movie. Do you think it changes the definition of what we mean when we say a great movie? I think it, I think it possibly does, yeah. And I think that would, that would, would have to do with, with who, who all... I, don't, I mean, presumably, last in, in the 2012 thing, you could click on the film and see who voted for it. And I think they haven't... I, I imagine they'll do that this year too, too, but they haven't done it yet. But it would be interesting to see what, what the constituency is that votes for different different movies I think but I think it does change the idea of what of what a, what a great movie is I mean for example in the in the director's list that movie come it does also appears but it's number number five on on the director's list the top of the director's list is, is Space Odyssey 2001 that that's the like 400 directors who voted on the films and 2001 also appears in in the in the size of sound top 10 but it's number, number six I think one of the main criticisms I would say that I've heard levelled against the list this time is that it shows too much of a bias towards recency in the film. So um, Get Out, Moonlight and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which came out yeah. just a year ago, yeah. made it onto the list this time. Do you think that that's something that's changed in film criticism since maybe even the last time that this has been voted on? Yeah, I do. I, I think actually, the, the, one of the things that, if you look at if, if you look at the if you compare the Sight and Sound top ten and the director's top ten, 
the directors talked as much more like a film school. And much more classic, you know, it starts with 2001, there has Citizen Kane, The Godfather, Tokyo Story, Vertigo, Eight and a Half. Whereas in the other poll, there's no sign of Fellini anywhere near the top. And Antonioni, who was one of my, one of my favourite movies, La Ventura was one of my favourite movies, came at number, we came at number 76. <laughs> so I think there's a, I do think there's a change of, of sort of, uh, you could think what's a great movie and what's a classic movie. And are you voting? I think it's an interesting thing about how people vote and why they would think it. But, you know, and rather than argue about it, whether I think all of these movies are great. And you can have forever. I mean, I think it could also feel, I would, I would think great was an adjective to be used, but it wouldn't necessarily be favorite. I mean, if, if I listed my favorite movies, they would not necessarily all be great movies. So because I mean, Singing in the Rain is, is in the top ten here, uh, is one of my favorite movies, but I wouldn't call that a great movie. Very interesting. <laughs> so, so that sort of thing. And I think so. there's sort of a question about what people think are, look, are looking for and thinking about. And I think the, there's a question of, which would be nice, I, I hope that, that wider audience is a younger, uh, the, the voting is a, is a younger group thinking more about contemporary movies because it's good to have. Uh, more recent movies, I think, in, in, in the list. But it would mean then you're actually thinking about movies you've seen recently and liked a lot, and you're not. The other posture would be a, a kind of fidelity to your memories, that you always love certain old movies and you don't want to see them go. And that I think must be true. But the, the, the figure who appears on high on everybody's list is the Japanese director Ozu, who's about number four or five. And I, I had put another movie. Uh, in the Ozu, I'd put Late Spring rather than Tokyo Story as as, as the movie, but Late Spring came in at twenty one, and and the the other one comes at number three, I think, uh, uh, four. Tokyo Story is number four. He had said two movies in the top twenty, you know, 20, so so that. But that's a kind of fidelity, I think. It's a great, the movie just remains so great, and everybody thinks they're great, and you can't really argue with it. You know? With that in mind. Will you tell us a bit more about what you voted for this time and maybe also how it's changed since the last time because you get an opportunity to re-vote every 10 years? Yeah, uh, it's a little... I mean, I think there's, there's, uh, what's interesting, if you counted it by directors, um, a lot of the, a lot of my movies are the same as everybody else's movies. But for example, I I, I put uh, the Kurosawa movie that I chose was, was Ran, his version of King Lear, which I think is, is a spectacular, the best movie he ever made. But that's not even in the top 100 for the, <laughs> for the final list. <laughs> and the other movie that I think is really great, that um, the, the, uh, the Orson Welles movie I, I chose was Touch of Evil rather than Citizen Kane. And that, that also didn't make it into the top 100. So these are sort of deviant things. But, but I do think that there, I think, you, you, people perhaps think differently about the question. And, and there's a question, I think, of both of, do I real, is this about my personal opinion or am I trying to sort of construct a canon? And am I, do I want to join a consensus? So, for example, if I want to join a consensus and I love Kurosawa, I would say Seven Samurai right? or Rashomon. And if I actually want to say what they think is the, the greatest movie, I would say Run, as I did. So there's a, it's not that you, it's not being right or wrong. It's actually it's a, it's a kind of different. The game is slightly different if you if you think of it that mm, way. I think, definitely. Right? Well, you've pointed out something which is pretty obvious, at least to me, when I think about this list, which is the level of subjectivity in it, which potentially gets slightly lost by the by the name of the list. So when we say the hundred greatest films of all time, you know, people can then get annoyed about the fact that it's not 
what they would consider the 100 greatest films of all time. Um, so do you think that a list like this actually has any value or is it just 1,600 people's favourite films? And I think it has value, but I don't think, I don't think it has the value that the title really suggests. Right? I, don't think it's, I don't think it's that reliable a guide to the greatest movies. If, for example, uh, I mean, one of the, the, the criteria you say for great books is how many times can you read them or do they work when you teach them? A lot of books, for example, that are, that are great to read and then you try and teach them and they fall apart. The language falls apart. It's too gross or too, too cliche. There's all of a sudden, what seemed okay has turned out to be cliches. So one criteria would be how often can you watch this movie and feel the same about it? So my favorite movie of all time is the, is the, is the silent movie, is, is Dry as the Passion of Joan of Arc. Which was on the list. It, that always makes it into the list because it is one of the. But to me, that is that is a movie that does so many things that, in a way that there is a question about about sight and sound, and here it's just just sight, <laughs> no, no sounds. And there is a question about classic. The the, uh, the other movie that everybody likes, the silent movie, is, is more now Sunrise. It's a great classic. But there is something about these silent movies that the the kind of work they do. And I wonder, what, what strikes me on the list actually is quite often, whoever is voting, there's usually something something cinematic about the movies chosen, right? Something, something some self-reflexive or slightly meta moment. So Singing in the Rain, for example, is about the arrival of sound in the movies. It's a musical, but it's got all, all of these moments where the movies, and also it, it ends with that fantastic scene where the person who seems to be singing in the movie is not singing in the movie, right? So as the movie itself reveals, the movie itself reveals the illusion of the movies. And I think that's true of Vertigo too, it's true of Citizen Kane. So I think there might be a, a kind of preference, among the kind of people who would vote in this thing, might have a preference for movies that say something about movies. Although, you know, the other, the other argument would be all movies say something about, about being movies. I mean, that's a criticism that gets levelled at the Oscars, isn't it? That, that, that there's a bias towards yes. films that depict Hollywood or something. But I think you're saying something slightly different. Exactly. I think the argument is interesting in that case because it actually fit, it doesn't fit the bill of, of Hollywood mass audiences or this, any of this sort of stuff. But it is very much a, a movie maker's movie. And, and you, you know, we are looking at things that only movies can do. Only a movie, for example, could show you a closed door mm. for a long time and leave it. So, so I think I think the game. I, I don't think it's a kind of. It's not. It's not. It doesn't settle who, which are the really great movies, but it does reflect changing tastes, and it is an interesting game. And it would. It's useful in the sense that some people will find some movies. I mean, with the Jean Dielman, a lot of people won't have seen that movie, and now a lot of people will. And it's not a new movie. It's what 1975 or something like that. Do you think um, film criticism as a kind of art form, but also as a a way of investigating film has changed significantly since you started writing film reviews. Um, no, I don't think the I don't think the reviewing business has changed a lot. Probably maybe not enough, but I mean it, it has. It uh, what what has changed is our sort of film scholarship and film studies, where it's much. But this has been changing for a while. But it's much more historical now. And if you're if you're a film scholar. Uh, and serious about film, it's it's much more to do with what you find in the archives and the reconstruction of of, of what how movies were made and what is there and what are in the, what what are the documents. So kind of film history is is a big deal, I think. And that was not that was in a way early early film scholarship was actually sort of anti history. It was all about what the critic felt and 
And there was then a lot of legislating. Of you. you had to get it, get it right. You had to know that Citizen Kane was the best, greatest movie ever made. Otherwise, you, you were, you know. I t- uh, yes, yesterday, I mentioned, I was talking to um, a member of our family about, about, this, about this, and uh, I said something about I thought Goodfellas was a better movie than The, God, than the Godfather. But, and she said, don't tell my uncle that. The guy thinks The Godfather's the best movie ever made. And good, good fellas, alas, came in at number sixty-three on this list. It did better than Raging Bull, which got bumped off entirely. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, but I think there would be a case. I could see a, a case for thinking the Godfather is 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 a, a greater movie than Goodfellas in a way. But there's a kind of personal edgy. There's an edgy to me. There's a kind of edgy quality and a kind of comic quality in, in, in the middle of the violence in Goodfellas. Which is not quite there. So it's a matter of taste, and that's a matter of taste. If you like certain edgy, slightly off off course things, you might choose another movie. We keep seem to keep coming back to this concept of taste or kind of subjectivity when you when you review. And I guess one of the one of the other criticisms of the list, or at least one that I've heard a lot, is that it's become more political somehow. You know, this idea that that sort of diversity in the either in the voting pool or in the choice of films, and I'm talking about diversity in terms of year released, origin country, director, and also the subject matter, um, somehow equates to something political and the choice. Um, But the things that you've described when it comes to choosing the list don't tend to have that much or don't seem to have that much to do with politics. Um, So do you think it's fair to say that film criticism has become somehow more political over the last, let's say, 10 years? No, I mean, I, I, actually, the answer is a bit backwards. I think it should. I mean, I would think it would be good if it did, but I'm not sure it has. <laughs> I do. Th- I do think diversity. I, I think diversity is a genuine value. I don't think. I don't. It's not about correctness or, or just you know sharing out things. That is just condescending. The notion of sort of spreading things out. But the idea of, of listening to voices you haven't heard or, or not thinking the voices you've been hearing all the, all your life are the only voices to hear. I think that that kind of diversity is good, and I think. But I think I think film criticism has always been pretty pretty diverse in terms of certainly in terms of international stuff, you know. The, the, the and that had to do, I think, with I think it had to do with when people people when I guess things like early uh, uh, like the new new wave French cinema where they, where they were, or Italian cinema they were so interested in in the movies that they they immediately picked up sort of Japanese films and African films and other, all kinds of other stuff they never they it was never enclosed into the i mean the French cinema was never really enclosed to to just France they were always making great movies in Senegal and other places and people who were aware of it they knew about it so I think that's always been a good thing they may have now tilted a bit they, I'm sure there's a bit of worry about that about representing and there are far too few women on the list for example. Um, and and that's because that, that see that is a that is a fact that a few women directors have been over time. You know that's that's being remedied a bit now. But um, I had Agnes Valdez, uh, Cleo from Five to Seven on my on my in my top ten. I love that movie. I love so that, that film. <laughs> do you know it? Do you know that movie? Oh yeah, I really love it. So I like I like that better than John Dillman actually. But, um, but me too. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below.
So just to pivot slightly away from the sight and sound list, um, you have reviewed 12 films for the LRB this year. Um, They've actually, speaking of diversity, have come from a very wide range of origin countries. We've had some Asian films, some European films, a number of American films, um, and they've really run the gamut of genre as well. So there was a Shakespeare adaptation, kind of horror, comedies, um, dramas of domestic interactions. Um, But were there any that particularly stood out to you or is there anything, as awards season is coming up, is there anything that you hope will get recognised? I, I really like the decision to leave. That was that was a terrific movie. I thought, and I thought, and I, and I love that Macbeth. But essentially, but although the Macbeth was all about the witches, the one the one witch instead of three witches, but it, it, well, that was fantastic too. I, and a lot of the others, like uh, movies that sort of are girl, but a movie like Nope, say that, that it, it's not really a successful movie, but it's very interesting. And, and I think that happens with a lot of, lot of new movies. I think you, you, you wouldn't, in this kind of contest, you wouldn't want to push them because the, too, too many of, the, of people's criticisms are true. You know? On the other hand, you can make really great, really interesting movies that don't quite work. <laughs> I think it was Godard who said that movie, you don't have to judge movies by, by the, the holes. You just need, have they got five or six minutes in them? That are really good. That's that's what a movie maker thinks. <laughs> Do you? Th- I'm just looking at the list, actually, thinking that it's almost surprising that you could come up with a list of twelve films released this year, especially from Hollywood, which aren't kind of massive studio blockbusters. I mean, you had Bullet Train, which which kind of is edging towards that category. Yeah, that was that was not a good. <laughs> that's not a good movie. <laughs> um. But, you know, for instance, we've not yet resorted to reviewing a Marvel film or a kind of um, big, massive um, franchise. Not lately. I, I, I had done some of those earlier, but they, they just got so tiresome, I think. I mean, there were just so many of them. And... So do you, think it's, um, do you think it's fair to say that the range of films that are being produced, especially in Hollywood, are, is, is dramatically shrinking? Or is yes, that kind of doom-mongering? OK, so it is true. No, I, think, I, mean, I do think the... And actually, people repeatedly say this, but I think that there's something... I think it's very hard now to, to make a, a coherent movie in Hollywood because there are too many... There are too many producers and market, market-based market research that if you've got to do this, you've got to do this, and you put five things in it that are on the list. That's not a movie. That's just, <laughs> that's just a package of some kind. <laughs> and I think there's quite a lot of that, particularly the, particularly the Marvel comics and all that sort of stuff, of which you know, they can be good, those things, but I think there's a, there's a point in which they, lo- they just get lost. They don't know what they're doing, really, I think. Except that and sometimes they're making money, sometimes they're not. And sometimes they're making a lot of money, I think. Some, and sometimes it doesn't matter what you, what you make as long as you put the right sort of things. At the, you know, so the marketeers, in that sense, are right. You know, but, but I think people, people in, directors and writers now are repeatedly saying that, that, there is, that there used to be a space for the art film or the interesting, the quirky film. And then that, that space is, is, is much smaller. I mean, I think it's, it's not, it hasn't vanished, but it, it's, uh, it's pretty thin now, I think, that space in Hollywood. And I guess the question is, again, returning to this idea of taste or subjectivity, how do you marry the desires or perceived desires of the audience with the desire of a filmmaker to make something that they think is kind of high art or worthy? I mean, presumably a lot of the decisions that have led to this kind of slightly franchise-heavy situation in Hollywood is to do with market forces, um, which is to do with what people want to watch. Um, So 
how do you think it's do you, or do you think it's possible to draw a balance between kind of satisfying audiences and satisfying creators? Yeah, I think you can, but I think I think I think people used to have the skill for that kind of thing. I mean, the, the, the skill, say, in classic Hollywood, there would be the market pressures and there would be the, the crass producers and so on. But then the, the directors would usually know how to finesse that. And any classic Hollywood director would know how to pr- sort of pretend to meet the requirements of the of the of you know Sam Goldberg whoever 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 the, the the producer is while while actually doing something else and you pointed out that vertigo is a very good example of where or hitchcock in general a very good example of where something extremely with extreme mass market appeal actually is doing something slightly more subversive yeah and i i, I think people i think old hollywood Directors, you know, Hitchcock would be one, Billy Wilder would be another. They, they were just expert at, at getting that to do that. I think now those same people would be independent movie makers and not, and not, and, and, and you know, great movies are being made. It's, it's easier to make a movie, it's cheaper to make a movie. You, you don't have to go to Hollywood. And so more move, more independent movies are being made. And I think probably that, that also takes away from Hollywood's losing the talent because the talent doesn't want to put up with all this stuff, you know. And with that in mind, do you think the the hold of awards, movie awards, is loosening? I do. Yeah, I do. Because I, I think there's, there's less to choose from. I think, and, it, and it's hard to. I think. I think. I mean, I haven't really you know, studied this, but I imagine if you looked around the world at film festivals, it would be quite different. If you looked at, you know, every country's got film festivals. You know, I bet I would imagine if you looked at the movies being shown at film festivals, you'd see a whole lot of great movies, and you would think that the, the movie business was in good shape. But I don't think you feel that at the box office. I think I find that you know writing, writing, writing for the paper. I find that it. I don't like to write. I don't. I don't see the point of writing about movies that I just think are terrible or I don't like. I don't. I, don't, I mean, I think you, you can make criticism out of out of your own objections to things. But it's not very interesting, and so I think it has to be something you like about it for me to to actually write about it. And sometimes it seems quite hard to find that there aren't lots of of movies to, things to like. You know, as they, you know, being released in cinemas regularly, I think. And uh, but there are there are always there are always good things there. But but often you have to look around a bit. But I think directors generally do. Even now, I think directors do do like those Asian directors we were talking about. They they find ways of doing stuff. You know, the parasite or the or the, the decision to leave or other things. They find ways of doing things that that are entertaining and uh, but it's kind of you know the kind of offbeat feeling that they can do. Yeah. And I think these those films were all pretty commercially successful as well. Um, yeah, and they did well. Some some of them did. I mean, I mean, Nope, nope is a really good example of that. that it's a film that doesn't really hang together, but is really actually full of good stuff. You know, it's full of great great moments and very experimental. So I, you you don't have to argue that it has to be a coherent. This would be an interesting thing about what great movies are. I mean, could could a great movie be sort of chaotic, but great as well, or does it have to be classically organised and a kind of perfect? Work, work of art, like a, like a gem of some kind. Um, the most recent film that you reviewed for the paper was Fanny and Alexander, which has been reissued by the BFI this month. It's its 40th anniversary. What was it like to re-watch a film that I presume you'd seen at least once before, mm-hmm. maybe a long time ago? Yeah, I, 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 it's interesting. I, I, yeah, I did see it a long time ago. And and I had when I saw it, I, I thought it was okay, but I thought it was a bit self-indulgent and a bit slow, 
And I'd also sort of gone off late Bergman a bit. And I really loved the early Bergman. I loved The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries and The Magician and so on. And by the time he got to Persona, I felt he was beginning to sort of, it was, it was great. It was good, but it was all, it was the same. And you know, Pauline Kael, the New Yorker movie, said, said Bergman was a, he was a movie maker. For, he made movies for people who don't like movies. Mm. <laughs> it's because there was enough intellectual content. Susan Sontag could write a great piece about Persona. You didn't have to like movies. You had to sort of love this serious, you know, psychological conflict and stuff. And I got a bit tired of that. And so, and then when we got to Scenes of a Marriage, and then I thought the last great movie was Cries and Whispers. And, and, and uh, Fanny and Alexander was about 10 years after that, I think, Cries and Whispers, about 1972, three, seven, and, and, and Fanny Alexander is, is you know, 82. Uh, so I, I thought it'd be nice to look at this again, and I started looking. And the, at the beginning, I, I felt the same as I felt that long time ago. That this that this is all no. I mean, actually, it, it was it was funny than that because I, before I watched the movie again, I watched a, a documentary of Bergman making the movie. You, you should look at this because there's a there's a wonderfully charming, amiable, nice guy there who looks just like Ingmar Bergman, but he can't be him because he's so happy and relaxed. <laughs> This is no good, you know. And he's having a really good time on the, doing the Christmas party, and and he shows how to say. He argues a bit with the, with the cameraman and and, and uh, great cameraman Sven Nyqvist and so on. And he does all this stuff, so that was very funny. To think. And then I watched the movie, but this this is too much. This stuff about the the, the Christmas stuff, it's it's all a little bit self indulgent. It's very long. And the then, first scene, kept, and it's very long. And then as I kept watching, I realized. There was there was something really interesting going. There was a kind of element in the air of this. This that we it was supposed to be celebrating. The kids are having a Christmas. They're all marching. They're singing songs. They're eating their cakes and so on. But everybody's worried. So there's a kind of weird air of worry. Yeah. In the movie, even when they're supposed to be having a good the time. Slightly unexplained tears caught, of the grandmother. Unexplained tears of the grandmother. And once I caught on to that, I realized the whole movie was sort of working in that way. That that it was all about. Uh, it's all about the unexplained tears, in a way, that, that, that I'm happy, life is great, I'm lucky, why am I crying? <laughs> yeah. and once, I, once I got into that, I thought the whole movie really worked at that. And then he got, at the end, when he gets truly creepy with the, with the puppets and the, and the stuff, I think at he, 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 that, that point he'd, he'd moved on from being, it's not exactly ironic, but for, he'd moved on from detecting the... the the sadness and the worry in in festivity and all that stuff, and he moved into a kind of what's a ghost and, and, and what, I, what I talked about. But you know, what, what do you do with what do you do when you get older and everybody else is dead, or what do you do when the dead won't go away, and what do you do when you've married this terrible person? <laughs> so it was, and he was into this, and he was th- and he was clearly thinking there because. At that point, he'd done a lot of uh, theatrical work. Not uh, there, was a, there was a time when he was thought to have left the movies and, and gone into the, you know live theatre. But this this way, he seemed to have come back to the movies with a strong feeling of live theatre still in his mind, and he'd made it work. Like this is what you can show in a movie: is this you can show all these things that um, it just felt by the end. With the with that, all that cross cutting and, and the and the burning body and flaming and the and the kid among all the all the all the puppets, it that felt like Hitchcock to me. <laughs> like it was really great. Do you think the fact that it was, or it is at least thought of as semi autobiographical, has to do with the way that it 
so accurately represents childhood. Yeah, I think it does, and I think he, I think he, that was probably he probably couldn't do it that before. He probably, he probably didn't feel that was appropriate, or he didn't want to look at that stuff, maybe. And I think he, you know, he, that must be why he was having such a good time on the set. I think. Well, either this is a question about the mystery of the movies. Either he was, either he was having a wonderful time on the set because he he resolved a lot of these things, or the documentary only shows the moments where he's having a good time, and the rest of the time he's misbehaving. You know? mm. <laughs> But Another miracle of editing. The miracle of editing, exactly. Do you think that there's something political about this film? Um, not really. What, 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 what do you think? Of, what, are you, what are you thinking about as political? Well, I'm just, I'm just wondering about this again about this question of the relationship between kind of humanism, let's say, and politics when we think about what makes a great film. I mean, although I mean, you point out in your review that the film is like a lot of Bergman films, obviously extremely critical of organised religion. Um, but I wonder if also there might be something... Well, I guess my question really is, is there something inherently political in a great film that, that elevates it? Or is there something inherently apolitical in a great film that elevates it? Ah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I think, I think in that sense, a great film would have to be political in some sense. It would have to connect... To politics in some way although you might have to try in this case I think yeah I think for example the question of religion in that movie and the question of the terrible bishop and so on I think you would have to interpret that I mean that is political but but for a viewer who's not interested in that is not exposed to or interested in that kind of religion you have to translate it into another kind of intolerance or another kind of um, dictatorial mode it's a sort of, it's, it's I mean it's the brutality of that position and also the self-congratulating quality which you don't have to it doesn't have to be about religion there's plenty of that around yeah and maybe the point is that all children have encountered that level of brutality or that level of self-congratulation in an adult and I was really as I said in the piece I was really surprised when I there was that wonderful shot where where a close-up on on Fanny's face when Alexander is getting beaten which is so moving and you think this kid is. She's just watching this stuff. She, I mean, she's not being hurt and tormented, but she's watching this stuff, and it's going. It's, she's never going to get over it. She's. She's going to have to live with this forever. This picture of what one human being will do to another, and that human being doing it will claim that he's doing it because he loves him, because it's all virtuous and everything is okay, and he's just doing it for their own good. It's such a. It's so nasty, and I guess in that sense, I think you're right. Bergman was pick, must be picking this up from, from his own life, and sort of, coming to terms with it in some way. This is um, a film that obviously laces an extremely large number of genres into it, but it's also yeah. a Christmas film. <laughs> um, do you think that, first of all, do you have any favourite Christmas films? And second of all, do you think that there are specific things that make a film a good Christmas film? I like the old Hollywood ones, like White, White Christmas and stuff like that. Um, my uh, Philip Roth, the writer, claimed, claimed that Irving Berlin, the Jewish guy writing writing the song White Christmas, was his, was his revenge against the Christians. Right? <laughs> this is the Jewish revenge against the Gentiles yeah. to write White Christmas and have him <laughs> sing it. <laughs> have Bing Crosby sing it, or whatever it is. Yeah. Do you think that there's something slightly ridiculous about the concept of allotting a film to a certain time of year? I mean, it's yes. obviously set at Christmas. Yes. But. Does that make it a Christmas film? No, it's, it's true. It would, ha- it would have to, yeah, to be a Christmas film, really, it would have to be interrogate Christmas in some way and, and have to have some mm. sort of 
idea about what I don't think, see that that is what that's not that's not you're not happening even in the Bergman I think it's, this is just mm. it's just an event and it's just just a party mm-hmm. you know I think there are barely, probably barely any Christmas films yeah, that like interrogate that. the concept no, of Christmas. Exactly. If you think about the ones that we actually think of as, yeah. you know, like Die Hard or Gremlins or something. Yes, right. right. <laughs> well, also the fact that, you know, there was a time on British TV when the Christmas, they would always show the same same old movies. This is before, before DVD and stuff. So if you want to say old movies, you'd, and it would, it would be, but there would all be, there would always be music, usually be musicals, you know, you know like, like Singing in the Rain and like, 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 that's entertainment and all kinds of stuff. So that, mm-hmm. and, and but that, that at one point that was the only way to watch those movies. You know, was to wait, wait them to show up on TV. Yeah, but I can't think. I can't think of a real Christmas movie that any is actually really about Christmas in any way. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for joining me. Thank you, Marilyn. Thanks for the questions. It was and the, and the discussion. It was great. Real pleasure. You can find Michael's review of Fanny and Alexander as well as his other At The Movies columns, in the latest issue, which is online now. If you would like to share your thoughts about this episode, the sight and sound list, or anything else, you can email podcasts at lrb.co.uk. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes, and the music is by Kieran Brunt. <laughs>